How do you win someone over to the pro-life position? What scientific facts and reasoned arguments can help someone understand that life begins at conception? Today we will learn effective arguments and talking points to convey our pro-life beliefs in our discussion with special guest author, Dr. Francis Beckwith. I'm Father Michael Scanlon, Chancellor of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. talking about presenting the pro-life position. We have a regular panelist with us today, and uh, Dr. Regis Martin, professor of systematic theology and spiritual theology uh, with his doctorate, and uh, of course, Dr. Scott Hahn, professor of biblical theology here at the university, and our very special guest today, Dr. Francis Beckwith. Professor of Philosophy and Church State Studies at Baylor University, a resident scholar in the Institute for the Studies of Religion at Baylor, and you've authored and edited over a dozen books and a hundred articles. That one impressed me, a hundred articles. <laughs> he specializes in the conflicts that arise between government and religion, but today we're concentrating on Dr. Beckwith's book, Defending Life, A Moral and Legal Case Against Abortion Choice. Abortion Choice. And that will frame most of our discussion today. So, here it is. We're, a lot of us are pro-life. Sure. But how do we win someone else over to the pro-life position? How do we get to this position where, uh, the unborn are not considered persons or members of the human family. How did we get there? Boy, it, 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 it's something that didn't happen um, instantly, that's for sure. Uh, in our culture today, and mostly in academic culture, uh, there's a, been a, a way of thinking that distinguishes human beings from persons. Uh, which you find, and it sounds kind of odd, when I share this with my students at yeah. Baylor, they'll, they'll say, well, every human being I know is a person. Yeah. Well, a number of philosophers, bioethicists, and others, uh, in order to, I think, at the end of the day, justify abortion. Yeah. Uh, uh, in other words, abortion serves a particular uh, purpose in the sexual revolution. That is, if, uh, if contraceptive, contraception is ineffective, uh, then you need some sort of backup plan. Well, it seems obvious to most people when they look at the development of the living organism of an unborn human being that it's in fact a human being. And so in order to uh, justify in, in some way killing that unborn human being, you have to come up with some theory. And the theory is, well, the unborn human being lacks certain characteristics that we attribute to mature versions of human beings. And so therefore, it is not a person. And uh, uh, one of the uh, goals of, of the book, Defending Life, yeah. is, is, a, is to offer a response <coughs> to that type of reasoning. But your, your book is enabling the reader and others to come at it on a other basis than just religious, so that uh, it's not just, oh, 
so they can say, oh, that's just your belief or your religion. Go ahead. That's right. Uh, uh, you know, one of the problems today in, in, in our contemporary culture is this, for the assumption that if somebody uh, enters the public square with theological arguments, somehow those arguments are by definition inferior. And one of the yeah. things I, I say in the introduction is I'm not suggesting that theological arguments are bad in themselves, right. but the fact is uh, if you offer a, especially the pro-life position in, in the public square, one of the responses that I get uh, is, well, that's just a religious argument. Yeah. And my, my response to that is, well, I'm <coughs> glad you didn't say it was a bad argument. The problem is that the assumption that if anything is sort of tied to a theological tradition, therefore it can never in principle be knowledge or defensible. It has to, be, it has to be privatized. That's right. That's yeah, I mean, this is just sort of like, you know, as you prefer some kind of soup, you know. That's right. So also you have this own subjective yeah. preference for it. But yeah. you're, you're advancing arguments on legal grounds, on scientific grounds, yes. on philosophical grounds, and historical grounds. Wow. You know, these are certainly, yeah. you know, uh, pinned down by faith and revelations, That's but right. they're not dependent, strictly speaking. The interesting thing is that theoretically, you know, the idea of the person is something that can be known by human reason. That's right. By our no natural powers. But concretely speaking, in, in actual fact, intellectual history shows us that the notion of person only emerges after the revelation of Christ, after the Christological controversies and Trinitarian disputes by the, by the third and fourth centuries. That's right. You know, that's when we have to figure out, okay, how do three persons share one nature in God? How does one person have two natures in Jesus? And that's when person actually ends up being formulated with clarity and precision. But it still took centuries before Boethius was saying, an individual <laughs> substance of a rational nature. Yeah. So we shouldn't be shocked that yeah. personhood is a difficult concept for people to get their minds around. That's right. In fact, uh, if, even if you think about the, the whole idea of rights, now this is the other, the sort of another irony in this debate, is that it's only after... Uh, the Christian tradition and, and its view of persons becomes fully uh, ensconced in Western culture that you have this whole idea that human beings are, first off, made in the image of God, and secondly, yeah. that image of God entails certain rights. And so, in a, in a, in a weird way, even the pro-abortion movement has to assume certain things about human beings and their rights, even though we may disagree with what those rights are. Oh, it's are. intellectual cannibalism. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's really, yeah, that's right. it's, they're eating the very stuff that gave them rise, right. you know. Yeah. And, and so they become skeptical. Now, this is an, another... Wait, be, before yeah, you ahead. go there, yeah. could we uh, return to the beginning? Sure. Uh, because Father Mike was asking you, how do you account for the mess yeah. that we're in, this predicament, yeah. this atrocity that yeah. we would agree is abortion? And, and you suggested that it's become a function of the academic culture yeah. to sort of create reasons, theories, yes. to account for its disjunction between being human and becoming a person. Well, my question is, what is it that accounts for the popular culture's uh, assumption and acceptance of abortion? Because it's pretty widespread and it's pretty well entrenched. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think with the popular culture, I, I actually think that the popular culture has become, has become more pro-life over the past 20 to 25 years, and this is... Statistics bear that out. Yeah, and pretty know. much from, I mean, the, you know, statistics bear it out, but also my own sort of anecdotal experience from being a professor that even my students that are pro-abortion will, will, will concede abortion's not good. Yeah. Which, is, which yeah. is really a, a huge shift from what I recall in the 70s and 80s where people would actually defend abortion as a good. Right. But I, I do think there are a couple of reasons why uh, in the popular culture uh, you have this, this 
in some, some enclaves is a pro-abortion mentality. I think it has to do with uh, an assumption about the nature of moral claims. That is, if somebody makes the claim abortion is bad, a lot of people translate that to mean something like abortion is something I don't prefer or abortion is something I dislike. Uh, now, if you start sort of pushing people and say, well, wait right. a second, uh, we don't say that about other things that we consider homicide. I mean, if somebody were to say, um, uh, supposing somebody had a bumper sticker that said, don't like spousal abuse, don't beat one. Right. You would right. say, well, wait a second, that guy doesn't truly understand what it means yeah. to be against spousal abuse. Uh, so I think one of the things that as pro-lifers we have an obligation to do when trying to communicate this to people is to walk them through it because a lot of times people haven't really thought it through. No. And, and I've had students uh, over the years who have come to class thoroughly pro-abortion and just by explaining mm. these distinctions they become pro-life. I don't even have to go any further. I don't even have to go on to give you know elaborate philosophical well, arguments well, for let's personhood. Make the because you, your strength is you distinguish like the moral and the legal. Yeah. The moral argument is that... Yes, the, the moral argument is that uh, all human persons, uh, because they are persons, ought not to be killed without justification. And right. That's, that, and, that's, and the question is, is, is the unborn human being a member of that community of persons? You know, and this helps us unmask what it is that causes the emergence of a kind of pro-choice default mechanism. Because yeah. I, I think people are pro-choice as a kind of default mode. Uh, that's just where they start out because of our culture. You know, on the one hand, America has always been characterized by pragmatism, a kind of an empirical yeah. approach to things. And so what you see is what you get. And then since the 60s, the sexual revolution has, you know, brought a whole new sense of individualism and autonomy, especially when it comes to the area of sexuality. You know, you bring those two together, you've yes. got a pretty lethal combination. Yes. You know, then all you've got to do is wake up in the morning, go out and breathe the air, and you're going to be pro-choice unless right. some good education has reached you. That's right. You also have, uh, com combined with that, th this idea that, uh, that doing the right thing never involves suffering. Right. I mean, so that's the one evil so, that we so, all agree on. That's so you know, the you know, my students uh, when when who disagree with me on abortion will say things like, "Well, but what if what if um, you know what if uh, your wife gets you know gets pregnant, and you weren't planning to have a child." I mean, the assumption is yeah. that if I don't have that if I ha that I have if I have this pattern of what my life ought to be, and something doesn't fit into it, I have a right to destroy that thing. Right. And if, but instead of thinking. Well, this being that has now uh, entered our life without our choice behind it is, in fact, a gift, and I have an obligation to learn from this, uh, this situation and to love this child. The, uh -huh. the, the thinking is automatically the self and the fulfillment of what the self believes is his or her own correct end. And I think that's, you're right, it's born of pragmatism. It's also born of this sort of hedonism and this other assumption that total control over your life is, in fact, a good. Yeah, well, it's something, you know, if you want to be pro-life, go ahead. Yeah. You, you do that, but I'm going to follow what I want to be. Right. And, uh, you know, this is America. We're all free. We have our individual rights. What are you doing trying to tell me yeah. what mine should be? You know, yeah. Francis, uh, the, the trouble I have with your analysis, yeah. uh, if I could be brazen, uh, sure. provocative, <laughs> is that it, it seems to 
imply a kind of disguised Platonism, <laughs> that virtue is finally only a matter of knowledge. You know, these lucky few who end up in your classes, you yeah. disabuse <laughs> them of yeah. a pro-abortion <laughs> stance yeah. because of your superior polemical skills. And, and that may be the case, but ordinarily, yeah. most people are not persuaded uh, by arguments, are yeah. they? The, yeah, I, I, I do think, um, I, I agree with you that you're, that, you know, I, I don't want to give the impression every time I give my arguments in class, students, yeah. uh, you know, collapse in, right. uh, in repentance or anything of that sort. But, uh, oh, I, I do not believe that simply knowing the yeah. truth does, means that a person's going to, uh, in fact, uh, act See, Because, I mean, the demonstration it. of the humanity yeah. of the unborn child is simply beyond cabal. Yeah. Everybody knows that. I want to step in. I'm just say, experientially, I have never been a public debater on this yeah. issue like you have been. But in my experience, going back to the 80s when Kimberly and I were involved in the pro-life movement and she helped form a, a collegiate group for pro-life that became nationwide, we found, I mean, almost universally, that uh, enough education just leads, it, it isn't like the Trinity. It isn't some like the mystery of the incarnation. I mean, there really is a sort of self-evidential quality to the idea that you can see this scientifically. It's a person. And what's so interesting to me is the backlash from the pro-choicers has been get rid of the photographs. Don't allow documentaries. Don't allow the educational material to be heard or seen. And they know why. Because once it is, it doesn't take a platonist to recognize the personhood of that fetus. But, yeah, but, but, but Scott, you could apply that also, I think, to the slavery issue. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows black people are human. I mean, why can't Southerners see but, that? You know, the or, or the Jew in, in Nazi Germany during the period of the Holocaust. They all knew they were human. But you know, the, the, there's an actually deeper question here. They may have known, but they may have not known that they've known in the sense that people can have, a, have an incredible capacity to yeah. deceive themselves. Sure. And so... And, and that's a moral decision. Yeah, right. And the economic incentives yeah. of, for slavery and the economic incentives for anti-Semitism. Yeah. You know, we can see the, the pragmatism. You know, James taught a whole culture to think in terms of the cash value right. of your personal decisions. Right. What are my personal consequences? You know, cash... Cost-benefit analysis, right, you know. Right. So if I'm going to keep this baby, what are the benefits if I'm so not? So is that why people resist the pro-life argument? Because it's not convenient uh, for me to embrace right. the, the That's fetus. right, and, there's, and there, there, there are several tactics that, that the pro-abortion side uses. One is to uh, attack the pro-lifer for not being fully virtuous, which is right. what yeah. you find yeah. sometimes. Right. The other is, in fact, to distract and move away from the issue of the unborn's personhood. So, for instance, these other considerations, such as economic considerations or, or considerations about the size of one's family or one's control over one's reproduction, uh, those sorts of things become the focus because I think the other side realizes that if, in fact, we do focus on the unborn, what happens? Then the pro-life position uh, ultimately, I think, wins in people's hearts. But I, I do think there's a kind of... Um, a kind of give and take when you talk with people about this, and it's not a knockdown, drag out argument that you give somebody, um, yeah. but uh, a you know walking somebody through. Well, when we come back, we want to do some walking through. Okay. That uh, that it's not just a moral argument, but we, it has a legal and a scientific approach, and therefore you can reach out to people on these bases and make your points. Stay with us.
One of the most commonly used arguments in the defense of the legality of abortion is in the case of a woman who conceives in rape, that she should not be forced to carry that child to term if it's not hers. However, when a woman goes through an abortion on top of being raped, she's only compounding trauma on trauma. Instead, if she carries that child to term, she has a chance to reaffirm her dignity, reaffirm her womanhood, and find purpose and meaning in what she's been through by bringing a new life into the world. I came here to Franciscan not only to grow in my academics, but also to grow in my faith and to become really what God wanted me to become. I walk into Mass sometimes and I'm flabbergasted about the crowds that attend even daily Masses. It's just so refreshing to see so many young people on fire with God and excited to be at Mass, excited to celebrate the Eucharist. Franciscan University is academically challenging and passionately Catholic. talking about how to present the pro-life position, not just hold it, but present it with Dr. Francis Beckwith here. And uh, we talked, Frank, when we broke about the different bases, that it's not just a moral argument because people can just say, oh, well, you have your morals, I have mine, but we have a scientific and legal basis. That's right. So give us a little of that. Well, the, the scientific case, uh, for the, the unborn's personhood is, is uh, material that people you know, can easily access in the internet or any sort of book on embryology. Uh, we know from the moment of conception that there is in fact an individual living organism with, o with its own intrinsic purposes uh, and the only thing it needs to do is to develop uh, and, ha and all it requires is shelter, food, and a, a congenial environment. Now how do how do you know that? In other words, I can just yeah. hear the answer coming back to it. Well, you, you know it. I don't. Yeah. Uh, well, it's I, in Defending Life, I, one yeah. of the things I do is, is cite a number of leading books on embryology. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's basic knowledge. Uh, uh, it's something that was actually not even disputed by Planned Parenthood. I have two quotes in the book, one from um, Alan Guttmacher from, from the 1930s when Planned Parenthood was against abortion and uh, when, because it was not popular to be for abortion at the time, and he said it's obvious, you know, life begins at conception. Wow. And then in the late 60s when... That's a quote to keep oh, around. Oh, yeah, and, yes. and then in the early 70s, Guttmacher, when he's, a, you know, an, an older man, says, well, you know, experts, you know, nobody really knows, you know, it's still in dispute, and of course, uh, you know, what changed between the 1930s and the 1970s? Well, cultural acceptance of abortion. Yeah. Uh, back then, if Planned Parenthood, uh, which was just in the business of offering contraception, had said, well, abortion is good too, they would have lost a lot of Protestant ministers that were on their side. Uh, because even then, it was just roundly, virtually everybody in the Christian world thought it was, it, abortion was wrong. And so uh, what, what happens? Well, th there's, a, there's a moral change within those communities, and therefore, Planned Parenthood doesn't have to uh, doesn't have to hold that position. So what argument can they make against the scientific uh, position? Well, they, 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 they pretty much, I mean, the, the more sophisticated folks yeah. will, will concede that scientifically the unborn child is, uh, is in fact a human being. What they'll yeah. say, it's not a person. Okay. And what they mean by that is that it doesn't exhibit certain characteristics that we attribute to moral uh, uh, 
moral, or excuse me, mature versions of, of human beings. And so, uh, for instance, uh, some philosophers have said, well, an unborn human being lacks the ability to communicate, to think rationally, uh, to have a self-concept, and that's what makes you a person. You, you've just described right. most of my students. Uh, yeah. You know, the undergraduate is, is exactly <laughs> like that. Right? So, yeah. Uh, is, has their right to life been vacated yeah. uh, somehow? I, yeah. I, I, I recognize that there has been a shift in, in, in pro-abortion sentiment over time yeah. because you can't sustain the fiction indefinitely that this is just a, 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 a vegetable or, yes. or a watermelon. It's, it's a life. That's I mean, that, right. That's, uh, that's uh, incontrovertibly so. Uh, and so it's really a matter of sensibility. They don't want the child. Uh, and so they create this unreal disconnect between yeah. humanity and personhood. And, and really, great big PhDs uh, uh, perpetuate oh. this myth, like Peter Singer. I mean, the arguments for abortion are really arguments for infanticide. Absolutely. And, and Lincoln anticipated all of this. If you can kill one person, you can kill any person. If you can enslave a guy because he's black, why can't you do it because he has blue eyes yeah. or teaches at Baylor? So the <laughs> argument, I, I think, it has to include more than simply scientific data. You know, as you trace this development in Alan Guttmacher and other yeah. people, you know, it's interesting that even though the social consensus might have shifted to kind of welcome this sort of pro-choice mentality, the scientific community actually developed the technology to discern DNA and the genetic yeah. structure and the independent substance of this human being, you know, and to see, as you described, you know, that it has its own purposes. It's got its own blood type, you know, and, and brain waves and heartbeat and all of those sorts of things. And, you know, so to say, well, you know, birth is the decisive factor. Well, that's, yeah. there's a change of location for that's sure. Right. But there's not really that much of an altered dependency because that little newborn is practically as dependent for its life, you know, upon its parents as it was when it was still in utero. You know, that's precisely why the arguments that are advanced against the personhood of that fetus, of that little one, uh, are, are going to end up, as you said, right. infanticide and euthanasia. Right. You know, when you're, a, when you're a patient in a coma, you're not capable of doing those sorts of things that, you know, an, an, an embryo is not capable of. And, and so you're at risk. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, if the issue is one of viability, I, I would argue that the teenager is certainly less viable uh, than, uh, than a newborn. Yeah. I, I'd much rather be changing diapers than dealing with an 18-year-old who got wants kids. my wallet. Okay, okay. okay. I understand. Uh, we, won't, we won't go there. Find that particular one there. Well, but, know, but let's get to Roe versus Wade. Yeah. What, uh, what was the base? That was a shock to the whole yeah. system when that came through. You know, we never, even though we knew the thinking was kind of around yeah. that, that decision just, wow. Well, that decision would not have happened if it weren't for an earlier decision called Griswold versus Connecticut, right. where the Supreme Court said that there was a right to privacy. And in a famous passage by William O. Douglas, the yeah. uh, uh, Supreme Court justice who wrote the plurality opinion in that case, he said it was the, what the emanations of the penumbras of, right. of, of several different amendments of the Bill of Rights. The, they think it was the first, the fifth, or the first, the fourth, the fifth, and the 14th Amendments, all together. Uh, Mutated. <laughs> yeah, and uh, this was his, his thinking. And at the time, um, if you read, interesting enough, if you read Griswold, it's, it's actually on one level a kind of traditional opinion. It's very traditionalist. It talks about the sanctity of marriage and the reason yeah. why, uh, the reason why contraception uh, ought not to be banned is because the marital bed is this 
you know, pre-political institution. And so you think, you know, even, even if a Catholic who may not agree with, you know, the contraceptive culture can say, well, that sounds like a, almost a kind of, uh, you know, Catholic natural law argument for, you know, marriage being a pre-political institution. Right. Well, it eventually, as within a decade or five, actually six to seven years, you have the court now uh, expanding that right to single people and it becomes an individual right to do what you want with your body. It right. shifts from a sort of sanctity of marriage to this, and then by the time we get to Roe, uh, the court now has the, you know, the, 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 at least the constitutional uh, basis to, to draw this conclusion. Now, the problem it had, though, was the fact that 46, I think, or maybe in 44 states at the time, prohibited all abortions. Right. Right. And in fact, uh, with the exception, I think, of New York and California, even the ones that permitted it had very, they, they were very, very restrictive. restrictive. Yes. And so what, what do you do with that? Because if something's a fundamental right based on the Constitution yeah. and you can't find any of the founders or uh, when the 19th or the, the, the 19th century when the 14th Amendment was passed, uh, virtually every state and jurisdiction prohibited abortion or soon did in its statutes. Uh, so the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Blackman came up with a very clever argument. He said, well, the reason why abortion was prohibited in the 19th century was to protect a woman from dangerous operations. Since the abortion is no longer dangerous, there's no basis for those laws, and it uh, violates the yeah. right to privacy. Yeah. Now, we, we've learned since then that that historical rendering is, is, is false. I mean, it's just but simple. Blackman's, yeah, his argument yeah. also tackled the Hippocratic Oath. Oh, yeah. You know, he cites some obscure article in the 40s by Ludwig Edelstein, yeah. you <laughs> yeah, know, right. who argues that Hippocrates developed this oath. But even back then, it was a minority view among yes. physicians. Well, that's true. I mean, physicians were constantly aborting and, and infanticide was common in yeah. Greece yeah. and Rome. But, I mean, the arguments that came from Blackman's decision yeah. Mm. were almost a self-parody. Yeah, and why would history matter? I mean, after all, all those governments were not liberal democracies right. that, that, are, that has a, a, an idea of judicial supremacy. We have, so, I mean, would he then say, well, I guess the Supreme Court ought to abandon its idea of judicial supremacy because they didn't have it in Greece. Right. Yeah. I mean, You'd it's, it's, a, cra it's a crazy... Yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's, yeah. let's agree that this yeah. is a, a species of moral idiocy yeah. that, that, that yeah. reminds us of Orwell's uh, observation that there is no absurdity which can't find an intellectual somewhere willing to defend. That's but right. I think Blackman and company did us a favor because it, it, it drew us back to bedrock. The issue finally is contraception. Yes. It's not abortion. It's, it's a mentality of unwanting life, refusing the invitation to be generous. And, right. and if that's at the heart of it, then I think the solution will have to move along the same lines. That's right. Once you see your children as subjects f that you make rather than gifts that are begotten, right. it changes your entire mentality. They become uh, even, you know, subconsciously. I'm not saying obviously most parents don't think of their children right. like this consciously. But if you, think of, if you think of them prior to their birth as simply things like microwaves or televisions, objects to be uh, uh, discarded at will, then that, does, that automatically changes the way you, you think of the whole process of parenthood. You know, this uh, raw judicial activism that Roe v. Wade expresses is really rooted in the shift 
in our understanding of the individual and the rights of the individual. I mean, before Roe v. Wade, you know, and 100 years ago, the individual had a certain relative autonomy, certain rights yeah. that were inherent. But then you see the absolutizing of that autonomy so that that individual becomes an absolute island, metaphysically. I mean, the choices yeah. are, you know, fundamental and determinative without any restrictions, especially in the sexual area. But what troubles me so much, I agree with you, Regis, but what troubles me so much when you look at Blackman, I mean, he was a Nixon appointee. Yeah. He was a Republican, appointed yeah. by a Republican. Yeah. And the Rockefeller Republicans back then were the ones who were pro-choice. Yes. Yes. The Democrats, even the liberal Democrats were pro-life. I mean, yes. Bobby Kennedy, Eugene McCarthy, Hubert Humphrey, yeah. they were all. You know, and I remember getting a sense in my own adult conversion that you know, these social conservatives who were Rockefeller Republicans looked upon babies as, well, they're going to, they're going to end up getting welfare. Right. They're going to end up becoming yes. dependent upon the state. And so let's just do it pragmatically back in the womb. I mean, it's a horrifying sort of pragmatism wow. on the right that yeah. you see. I mean, and you even saw the Southern Baptist Convention in the early 70s. Yes, yeah. You know, embrace Roe v. Wade. Yeah. It took years to convince the Southern Baptists to kind of accept. Listen, I, I can remember amazing. hearing Jesse That's Jackson amazing. in ringing tones yeah. endorse the right to life of unborn children. He called it black genocide. Right. Yeah. That's right. what he called it. Yep. And Abortion. Yeah, it's, there, there, there's a, it's, it's kind of an historical accident yeah. how, um, how you know, the parties happened to embrace these views because uh, there was really no, uh, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that the Democratic Party was going to be uh, pro-abortion yeah. and the Republicans pro-life. Uh, I think what really made the difference was the sexual revolution and the new left right. being welcomed in the Democratic Party. And of course, the new left did have, uh, its views did overlap some of the views that many Christians that are pro-life held. And so yeah. uh, there, there was an alignment there, but... But feminism too, if, you know, that's that right. somehow yeah. you're, you're cutting out the rights of women if they can't have an well, abortion. What's, what's interesting, even Betty Friedan, uh, when, she was one of, when she helped found the National Organization for Women, uh, had conservative pro-life women involved, including Bill Buckley's sister. Is that right? And then wow. when uh, yeah. uh, Gloria Steinem and some of the others, they got rid of them. Right. So there was actually at the beginning a kind of uh, there, uh, belief among some that there's no one feminist position on this issue, and of course that didn't last very long. Well, now it has become so monolithic that we've got a president who actually thinks that, uh, that uh, late-term abortions uh, uh, are, are perfectly legitimate. And, and remember a few years and back. And federally fundable. Governor Casey of Pennsylvania, th that stalwart oh, sure. pro-life yeah. Democrat, yeah. was refused access uh, to, uh, to a platform, uh, a oh, microphone, yes. at the National uh, uh, Convention. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that would have been unthinkable uh, a generation before. That's right. So what we're really saying is, hey, don't lock yourself into political categories yeah. because the politics have so switched on this over the years. But it, it also but testifies to the fact that we have so institutionalized this anti-life practice and mentality that it's going to have to take a conversion from above to shake the foundations. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about that conversion and the core concept of personhood. Stay okay. with us. When talking to someone about the issue of abortion, it's very important to maintain a calm and loving tone. When we talk to someone, we have to meet them where they are, and we have to meet them with respect and 
with compassion, even if they do not agree with us. And only through that will we have a conversion in this country toward a culture of life and will we change people's hearts. Abortion is not a solution to a problem. In fact, it only compounds a problem. As Students for Life, we go out to abortion facilities to meet women where they are and to provide them with real alternatives which will give them the strength and the resources to choose life. I'm amazed at the caliber of students that are around me. These are, these are people that are striving to be saints. When you look around you, you see people who are full and people who are complete and people that are searching to grow in all areas of their life. This isn't something that you can find in most places. It truly has been a challenging academic experience that is preparing me very well for the medical field. Franciscan University is academically challenging and passionately Catholic. here at Franciscan University and with Dr. Francis Beckwith and our regular panelists. We're surrounded by our students working the equipment and we're dealing with how to make the pro-life position, how indeed to do it without just being dismissed as a, oh, that's your religion or that's your belief, I have a different one. And key to this whole thing is grasping personhood and knowing the how to how to talk about it. Um, can we wrap the, so many of these anti-life issues up into a really solid, vibrant concept of personhood? And how would you do it? Well, the way that I that I make the argument in defending life is I, I, I first uh, one, one of the things I want to do is 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 to show that those that op oppose the pro-life position, in fact hold to a view that, that, that human beings at some level of their development are intrinsically valuable. For example, the pro-choice person believes that the woman who's pregnant has intrinsic value. So the question that I want to answer is, uh, when does that intrinsic value arise in the development of a human being? And what the pro-abortion person does, he or she tries to pick out some characteristics as essential to being an intrinsically valuable person. And these characteristics, as I mentioned earlier, are things like uh, the ability to reason, to communicate, to have a self-concept. And so one of the points that I make is that uh, human beings gain and lose those characteristics yeah. throughout their development, even when they become adults, and it never changes their intrinsic dignity. And in order to make this case, I give several counterexamples. Uh, I talk about an individual who may be temporarily comatose or a person that may, in fact, lose some abilities as a consequence of an accident. Uh, and, and the problem with the pro-abortion position is that uh, not only can I come up with these counterexamples, but these abilities come in degrees. So, for example, you know, some people are more rational than others. Some people can communicate better. Right. Some people are more intelligent. And yet, uh, the pro-abortion advocate wants to believe that human beings are in some sense equal. But how can they be equal? How can they share the same property of equality if you ground it in these degreed properties? Uh, ultimately, what I'm defending is what is called the substance view of persons, which, is, uh, uh, which I get from Thomas Aquinas's work. And what I do is I offer a uh, kind of a contemporary defense of it, influenced uh, by one of my former professors, uh, the late Norris Clark, who sure. uh, I studied under at Fordham. Yeah. Uh, 
I quote him in the beginning of my chapter on personhood, and he yeah. defines a person as a, as, a, as a substance, a human substance that has certain intrinsic capacities uh, for personal relationship. Right. And, that, yeah. and that, those capacities are present from the beginning, even before they're actualized. Right. right. Yeah, Father Clark uh, famously speaks of the human being as, as uh, disposed both to possess himself and to donate himself to the other. Yes. And, and that mutuality, it, it seems to me, is inscribed in our being from the first moment of conception. And, and to deny that, I, I think, is to, is to invite a, a kind of charge of barbarism because there's no standard. Uh, and, and you are prey to the forces of ideology and power and, and pleasure uh, and, and nobody's safe. That's right. You know, you can trace the genealogy of this idea back beyond Aquinas, of course, who's drawing from Boethius. But when Boethius gives us this definition of a person as an individual substance of a rational nature, that's a philosophical definition. Yes. I mean, it's not drawing in any way from Revelation, from the that's Bible, right. from the creeds or the councils. And I think that's what makes it so serviceable, not just philosophically, but, but scientifically and yeah. legally and morally. And I think this is why we have to proceed. But when we hear the definition, individual substance of a rational nature, it, it does sound like Spock on Star Trek. Yes, you, know, you have yes. this isolated you know, intellectual automaton. But rationality in, in Aquinas, rationality, especially for Nori Clark, was relational. That's right. It, it was a relationality. It's precisely because I can know that I can also love. If I'm not operating on pure instinct, but on the basis of human reason, that's what, you know, that's what enables me to recognize the truth of the other and the goodness of the other and to enter into this reciprocal exchange of love. But, but what, what do you do in a culture where more or less everyone is not reading Boethius and, <laughs> yeah. and wouldn't believe him if they did, and, and this relationality business is yeah. just a myth. In fact, it's an inconvenience. Why should I stand in relation yeah. to this unborn child? I, you know, I, I think we have, to, and, I, and I try to do this in the book, uh, is you have to walk people through it. That is, you have to show that ultimately, and maybe the, I, this is you know, my natural law training, that, that down deep, that in fact people accept these premises as well, even if they verbally deny them. Yeah. And, and what, I, what I'd like to do with, uh, in the debates I've been in and with students is, is to ask them, are you an intrinsically valuable person right. who ought yeah. to be loved? Yeah. And I've never had anyone say no. Yeah. And once you say that, then you and they say, well, when in fact yeah. did you acquire these characteristics? Right. Uh, there's a, a, years ago when, um, uh, was uh, the fellow, I think his name was John Salvi, he entered an abortion clinic in Boston and, yes. and, and shot uh, people there. And of course, obviously, I think that's a horrible thing to do. Uh, but afterwards, uh, they had this uh, pro-choice side, had this uh, rally where a candlelit, vid candlelight vigil, and there was a woman standing there with a little baby in the vigil. And she said, uh, she was asked by the ABC News reporter, why are you here? And she says, so that when she grows up, she can have the right to choose. And I watched and I thought, but four months ago, this being that you believe yeah. has this fundamental intrinsic dignity and this yeah. opportunity to choose could have been killed by you. Right, right. And so, you know, this, I've used this example to my students and in debates and it, it, it really shocks people because all of a sudden they realize the only way I can make this distinction 
is to be capricious and arbitrary. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't treat other people like that. Right. And so at the end of the day, you're not going to, I think, have a knockdown, drag out, logical proof that's right. going to have somebody fall and say, I, 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 you know, I agree. It is, uh, it, it is a kind of Socratic give and take. I'm glad, yeah, it, it really is Socratic. You have to take people slowly through it, you know, because, you know, they're not going to read Boethius, but they might read Defending Life. Yes. And they're getting Boethius filtered through Aquinas and natural law and all of that. But it's a kind of ethical evangelization. I mean, you can't just reach into somebody's heart, take it out and put a new one in there. You can't force the intellect to accept conclusions, but you can slowly and respectfully take them you know, and, and Aquinas is very forthright about this. He, he acknowledges that the first principles of practical reason are known by all. Good is to be done, evil is to be avoided, you know. But he acknowledges that the, the, the corollaries that you derive from them, you, you need moral teachers. Right. You need people who have expertise to kind of work slowly so that people can get it. Right. And I think that's what really has to happen. So you're coordinating head and heart, you're coordinating faith and reason, you know, and you're appealing to the intellect, but you're also appealing to the will and to the emotions, because that's how we as persons are converted, but, but, I mean, all of this is perfectly obvious to us. Yeah. I mean, it's transparent yeah. even, that, that when you trivialize people, their value, cheapen their worth, then, then everybody is at liberty to kill them. We can see that that's morally absurd. Mm -hmm. But Stephen Douglas didn't see that in those debates yes. with Abraham Lincoln uh, which I, I think you, you, you cite sure, yes. uh, in your book. Lincoln is appealing to the metaphysical status of the human being, whether he's black or brown or polka dot. He's a man, and he ought to be accorded certain rights. Douglas could see that as an abstract principle, right. but it interferes with this myth of popular sovereignty. Yeah, and and you're, yeah. you're, you're not going to, excuse me. No, go ahead. Yeah, you're, you're not going to be able to convince everybody uh, uh, especially the person you're debating. I mean, one of the things that it's just theater. occurs, you know, it occurred to me after so many years of, of doing this, that it's the, those people in the audience. That, that, and so in a way, yeah, there'll always be people that have a seared conscience who, yeah. who simply are going to be in, incapable of or just, you know, willfully unwilling to entertain the possibility they could be wrong. But what you, what you have to remember is that there's, a, there's an audience out there and there are people that will be persuaded. Uh, you know, remember Jesus himself. <laughs> there are some people that just, you know, weren't willing to believe. And in fact, in many ways, you know, his example of, of the way in which he taught, excuse me, how he taught by offering, by telling stories, parables. I mean, there's something, you know, if the greatest teacher that ever lived yeah. employed that, we should maybe right. think sure. of that as, as a... But on the other side, the emotional. But there was, but it was a rape. But it was incest. Yeah. But the, uh, but the child is deformed. But but yeah. there's no money. These yeah. kind of emotional arguments make great impact on they people, do. and uh, somehow uh, we have to show compassion for that, yes. and yet break through to the higher value. Yeah. And, and I think on on those issues, the emotional cases, we have to be really careful and, and, and acknowledge right. that great wickedness has occurred in those cases. But we also have to then ask the question, it's a very difficult one, on what grounds, especially in the case of rape, do you justify killing the rapist child who is innocent? Right, right. And, right. and it has to be put in, in, in that way. One thing that I, especially on these issues that I've uh, 
I've done in, in the times I've, I've had to face this question, I've asked the person, uh, if there were no cases like this, would you still be for abortion rights? Ah, yes. And so that, and the, the answer is usually yes. And then I say, well, then why do you bring up these tough cases right. if yeah. they're not yeah. relevant to your point of view? Because hard Great cases strategy. make bad law. That's right. And, and you are right. I mean, this is finally an appeal to the heart. Yes. You've been victimized by this, this, this violent assailant, but do you want to visit the same violence on the child who is entirely innocent? I mean, a syllogism is not yes. going to carry the day. You have to walk with that person. You have to evince a real compassion. You, right. you also have to prepare yourself to encounter people who are seared in yes. their consciences, you know, yes. and, and not necessarily on stage with the theater of this rhetorical exchange called a public debate but in a conversation with a family member or a friend. And you have to show respect and sensitivity, you know, even there. But at the end of the day, I would say that the seared conscience of those people who are going to use hard cases to justify complete, you know, and total rights, uh, those consciences are more seared than Frederick Douglass. You know, you go back, and, and, and back in the days of slavery, they were arguing primarily on political grounds to keep them from being free, you know, and suffrage and that sort of thing. But it wasn't the right to kill slaves. It was the right to own slaves. And, and slavery is reprehensible, and you had seared consciences back then. But I don't think they were any more seared then than they are now. In, in fact, Lincoln himself, in, 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 in one of the debates, kind of points out the inconsistency that, that uh, you know, if if if, property. If, if if it's property, then it's like he, the slave is like cattle. So right. why not kill it? Yeah, why not? And it's interesting right. because there there were actual you know you could be put in prison for killing right. your own slave. Exactly. Right. And uh, well, you you couldn't be put in prison for killing a cow. Right. So right. there was a you know clearly there, there was that understanding down deep that there mm -hmm. was something different going on here. Well, what, what does Emerson say? Inconsistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. No consistency. Consistency. Yeah. Sorry. yeah. And, yeah. And, but, Yes, that's right. Consist they're being consistently self-serving. I mean, that's, that's right. what draws them. Th th it, it's not convenient for me to liberate my slave. It, it's not convenient for me to agitate against genocide directed at Jews because I'm not Jewish and I don't want to disturb the peace. I don't want to end up at Auschwitz. And it's not convenient for me to interpose my conscience <laughs> against a law that permits abortion. And that seems to be the prevailing ethos. How do we overcome that? Boy, I, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I do think, and you know, uh, maybe I'm a little naive in this regard, I do think that even though that is the dominant ethos in our culture, people still recognize the fact that it is wrong to kill persons without justification. And I think given that premise, and given the fact that people do know what it means to love their own children, that yeah. we can appeal to those fundamental sentiments that are still there. That's well, right. when we come back, we're going to have some final thoughts, take away what you can do to really present the pro-life position uh, with the people that you encounter. So stay with us. So in my past experience um, talking to other people about the pro-life position, I find that I usually run into one of two types of people. The first have a blockage of the mind, and they call themselves pro-choice because they really don't know the truth about life. They haven't been shown good reasoned arguments that would enable them to believe, yes, the unborn child is a human being, they are a person, and they do deserve our protection. The second case, um, people have a blockage of the heart, 
and that's a deeper and more difficult barrier to get rid of because no logical argument is enough to tear down that barrier. The only thing that can penetrate it is a personal encounter with the love of Christ. A common pro-abortion argument is that a woman has the right to an abortion because she has the right to control her body. This argument fails to take into account that the child growing and developing in her womb is a distinct person with his own rights. Any person's rights end with the violation of the rights of another person. Therefore, a woman's right over her body cannot violate the right to life of the distinct person growing within her. You're watching Franciscan University Presents, but you can experience a greater fullness of this message. Our conferences zero right in on strong catechetics that teach you to deepen your faith and to be equipped to go out into the marketplace and stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and His Church. Franciscan University Summer Conferences, 800-437-8368, franciscanconferences.com. Okay, we've been talking about how you can present the pro-life position, how you can indeed make the arguments from science, from law, as well as morality, that shows the dignity of the human person and therefore the need to be pro-life. So we're going to have final comments and takeaway thoughts. And Regis. Well, uh, I, I think uh, it's pretty clear uh, among ourselves that uh, a defense of abortion is really an exercise in intellectual <laughs> barbarism. I mean, the Greeks regarded anybody who couldn't speak Greek as barbaric, so I suppose most people are barbarians. But I, I, I think we extend that to the moral realm and we say if the grammar of the moral life isn't inscribed in the choices you make, then you really are a barbarian. If, if there's no good or evil, no standard to which the helpless especially can make appeal, then you've lapsed into a dark age. Uh, you know, the lights have gone out, but nobody notices it. It's dark. That's barbarism. And, and I think that you rightly uh, identify moral relativism as really the villain of the piece. This notion that values are shifting, they're subject only to, to uh, where you live, uh, your temperament, uh, your prejudice, that it's not really a, a matter of universal binding force. And, and I would agree that until we can restore a sense of the absolute horror of, of, uh, of killing children uh, and uh, the reverence that attaches to life simply in virtue of its being, its being an image of God, a gift of God, until that day uh, uh, dawns, then I think you're going to have a tough time uh, uh, you know, uh, persuading people uh, to come along uh, and uh, see the child in the womb as really their brother or sister or neighbor. Okay, well, thank you. Regis Scott. Uh, I want to thank you for writing the book, Defending Life. It reminds me of the process I underwent because as I was reading through the arguments, it, I was rehearsing uh, the first three years of my marriage. You know, I, <laughs> I remember in 79, I was, uh, I was married and we went off to seminary and I was reading articles that dealt with the debate on this passage in Exodus about were you 
cause a woman to miscarry. And Jack Cottrell was arguing a pro-life and others were arguing against it. You know, I'm just thinking exegetically, this is a tangled mess, you know. Kimberly, though, our first year of marriage, took this course in seminary. And with the help of Dr. John Jefferson Davis, our good oh. friend, Jack, Davis helped her to see the way to assemble the arguments. And so, sure enough, she did it scientifically. She did it legally. She did it morally. She did it philosophically. And I was already pro-life, but kind of privately so. Mm. And I was sort of a relativist. Well, it's just never going to really you know, persuade her. But when I heard her presentation, I was blown away. Yeah. Our second year of marriage, she got kind of frustrated because everybody kept saying, you know, well, you've got to trace this back to contraception. It's like, no, you don't. Then she began to realize, yes, you do. She read Humanae Vitae. And she's like, Scott, you got to read that. I'm like, it's written by a pope. I don't want to read it, you know. And when I finally read it, I realized this is so persuasive. I mean, not just rhetorically, but substantially demonstrable. You know, and, and so by the third year of our marriage, we had a baby, you know, not just a change of mind. And that little infant, Michael, incarnated the truth that we had come to. And so we really embarked upon a journey, you know, not only to become Catholics, but to get involved on the issues concerning contraception, abortion, pornography, you know, and all sorts of other things. And we found that when you patiently and respectfully and with sensitivity present the evidence, the majority of people don't have seared consciences, but even the barbarians who do are not beyond the, you know, the reach of divine grace. And we just saw a number of people not only awaken to the truth as we had, but to really jump on the bandwagon too. Mm -hmm. So thank you for writing it, Good. and I hope people, a lot of people read it. <laughs> thank you, Scott. So you've written yeah. the book, and, and uh, uh, how would you summarize things right now? What would you want our viewers to you take? Know, I think the, the abortion debate is ultimately about one question, and the question is who and what are we and can we know it? Ah. And uh, let me explain each part of that question. Who and what are we? That is, what, what does it mean to be a human being? Uh, when did we begin? And if, in fact, uh, we began at a certain point in time, uh, did we have a certain type of intrinsic dignity, a certain nature uh, that requires that we be treated in a particular way? Mm -hmm. The second part, can we know it? And this is key in our culture today. Uh, people will say, oh, that's interesting, that's your belief yeah. about, about human beings, but it's simply a belief. And that, uh, as Regis pointed out, this is a kind of relativism. There's a, a, a view that when it comes to questions about the nature of human beings, it's simply up for grabs. Each person decides for him or herself. But you can't have uh, a liberal democracy, let alone a civilization or a culture, without a shared understanding of who and what we are. Our institutions presuppose that, whether it's marriage, uh, whether it's uh, questions about child rearing, even questions about the public institutions of, of academia, the public schools, all these have to assume something about human beings. And so the abortion debate, if we want to go, I think, back to the, I think the ultimate question, it's, it's about who and what we are and can we know it. I do think uh, one of the things that we have to do in our local parishes and for those in, the, in other Christian communities in, in, in their uh, in their congregations is to equip people on how to uh, defend the pro-life position, but to do so in a winsome, intelligent, yeah. and attractive way that we have to be, as they say, happy warriors. And that, uh, whether we like it or not, people uh, are influenced by the example we set, how we conduct ourselves in public, how we, in fact, uh, treat uh, women 
who are in crisis pregnancies. Right. That is bringing them to our homes, feeding them, clothing them. Right. So we not only have an obligation to offer the arguments, but we also have to offer ourselves as well. Bill, that's strong. And uh, you've done a great job. The book, Defending Life, A Moral and Legal Case Against Abortion Choice. And from Cambridge Press, and this book is a great resource for that. And we're going to send you, just for the asking, excerpts from this book on a moral and legal case against abortion, the choice. We will send you this to you. Just contact us, and we'll be happy to give it to you so that you become equipped, equipped to present the case to win over. But when I say win over, I don't mean conquer. Key to the whole pro-life ministry these days is love. You gotta love them. You've gotta love the woman who has the unwanted pregnancy child. You've gotta even love the woman who comes out of the abortion clinic. Our students started many years ago just standing for the truth and now they're finding as they go out by the hundreds to the abortion clinics that if they love the women going in, if they love the women coming out, if their whole pre presentation is love and the pictures of the babies in the womb before and after birth uh, are pictures presented in love, this really makes a difference. Pray hard, love strongly, and get equipped with the right arguments uh, to give good rational support to the positions you take and you can be a warrior for life with love as your shield. Till next time, uh, come and visit us. Take some distance education and whatever, but may the Lord bless you and keep you, show his face to you and have mercy on you, turn his countenance to you and give you his peace. May the Lord bless you. He was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To receive a free handout on today's topic or to purchase a video of this show, call 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357. Email your request to presents at franciscan.edu. Or write to Franciscan University Presents, Franciscan University of Steubenville, 1235 University Boulevard, Steubenville, Ohio, 43952.